0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Eric Larson, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The splendid and the vile spent most of 2020 and a good chunk of 2021 on the bestseller lists, and now it's out in paperback. And we're so excited to see you because we're going to have a slightly different conversation. We're not going to go picking through the details here, but I want to talk about craft I want to talk about research. I want to talk about all of the interesting stuff that goes into the making of a book like The Splendid and the Vile. And yes, you're Eric Larson, but you chose Winston Churchill, who is one of the most well-documented men on the face of the earth. Winston Churchill was your starting point, Eric.
1: Yeah, well, believe me, there probably was not a day that went by where I didn't say to myself, what on earth am I doing and why did I take this on? Early on in the process, I was talking with a Churchill expert over breakfast in Washington D.C., and he was kind of—he was basically asking me, "Why on earth are you doing this?" And my answer to him, which stuck through, throughout the whole project, is that it's all in the telling. You know, yes, I know everybody's written a, a zillion books about Churchill, and I know that a dozen biographies and other books will come out this year alone. But there was a very specific question that I wanted to answer, and that was, "How did Churchill and his family and his close advisors?" get through that initial German air campaign, that basically year-long campaign began May 10, 1940 and ended literally May 10, 1941, and, and just on an intimate level, what that was like. And nobody had actually done that before. How remarkable is that? I, you know, I was like, wow, lucky me.
0: Well, lucky you, but you also have great research skills. So let's start there because we've got a really big cast. You've got the Brits. You've got Churchill's family. You've got the German. I mean, there are a lot of moving parts to the story. Obviously, yeah. you're deep in the research. But what's revealing itself first is it the characters? Is that you have the idea? We're clear on that. Right. But what's next?
1: When I when I get an idea about what I want to do, I always uh, look very closely at the idea first. I do a very detailed mm-hmm. book proposal. My agent keeps telling me I, I probably don't really need to do that anymore. A letter would probably suffice. But this is for my sake to know that the thing I'm working on is actually really there. And so it was really um, heavily driven by character. Churchill, of course, was one of the great characters, if you will, of of all time. But also the people in his life who in themselves were charismatic in some way. His close advisors like Lord Beaverbrook, his science advisor, Frederick Lindemann, known as the prof, his daughter, Mary Churchill, who was vital to the telling of this story, and his daughter-in-law, Pamela Digby, ultimately Harriman, who was a wonderful character as well. And once I had a sense of all these characters, I get very architectural about it. I put, get a big piece of drawing paper, big ruler, and I draw the arcs of these people, where they converge and and how they converge. And I was really amazed to find in this book, that in the creation of this book, that so many things came together at the end of that one year, on May 10, 1941. A lot of people sort of Make the mistaken observation that, and they mean well, of course, but the mistaken observation that, that my goal was to write about the first year of Churchill's prime minister it was not at all my goal. It just happened to work out that way that that was the period encompassed by this initial German air campaign. And from a narrative perspective, it's like it died and went to heaven. All these things that converged on May 10, 1941, at the end of that year, not just the end of this German air campaign. Big changes and sort of serious challenge to Churchill's uh, hegemony in that period. And Rudolf Hess, uh, you know, Hitler's number two, parachutes into Scotland that night and the night before. It's like all these things came together. I couldn't believe it. It was was just a a lovely sort of confluence. Once I have a narrative structure, Mm -hmm. once I have my characters, because of very simple matter, just trying to find everything I possibly can about those characters to make them come alive. It's not about making anything up. It's about finding their details and bringing those to life.
0: How long is this kind of research taking you, though? Are we talking months? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking years?
1: When I'm working on this book proposal, that usually takes me about six months. Just by the time I start actually working on the book, once I've got the okay from my publisher, I'm already six months into into the research. It's not archival stuff yet, but it's the tertiary reading, it's memoirs, diaries, and so forth. Whatever I can get my hands on, basically from my office. Then starts the really bitty-gritty part of the research, and that will go on Pretty much as a full-time job, seven days a week, for about two years, with some travel to archives. You know, my wife and I went to London several times, and I just haunted the National Archives of the UK, Oxford, um, Cambridge. It was just, just, which was always actually a a total delight. But that went on for about two years. Before that two years is up, I generally get to the point where I'm feeling like the story just has to begin. You know, I have to start telling the story, and so I will go into what I call page a day mode which is where my goal is to simply write a single page, a single book page, and then stop. Stop when I'm ahead, stop in the middle of a sentence, middle of a paragraph, stop somewhere where I know I can start the next day. And I'll just keep doing this one page a day, mainly to make me feel like I'm, I'm making progress in the writing. And over time, the research starts to, starts to tail off and the writing starts to expand. And then I'm in full, full writing mode for the rest of the, the project.
0: For The Splendid and the Vile, I know you captured the title of the book from a diary entry. Yes. But I have a question for you about the subtitle because there's a word that you use in the subtitle that I think is really interesting because it's so precise and it's really kind of emotional. And that's defiance. The subtitle of the book is a saga of Churchill family and defiance during the Blitz. And can we just talk about how that was the word you settled on? Because I do think it encompasses everything you're doing but it's a very particular yeah.
1: word. <laughs> That's interesting that you pick <laughs> up on that. Nobody else has. And it, it, it was a long time coming. I mean, I'm a, I treat subtitles very seriously. I have certain rules, in fact, that govern my my selection of the subtitles. I just went to, I can't tell you how many titles, first of all, but also how many subtitles. Actually, how so many titles? I love this title from the beginning. But the subtitle, the various iterations of the subtitle, that just absolutely took me forever. But it was the, the defiance element that, I think really gave, well, first of all, the subtitle, Life, and also captured the the essence of what the book was about. This is about a man and his family who would not be cowed by this absolutely incomprehensible German air campaign. I mean, that's one of the things that drew me, by the way. You know, I know the thing that inspired this book for me was moving to Manhattan and suddenly having a completely different perception of 9 11 than I had had from when I was living across the country. You know, I sure watched it unfold in real time on CNN, but Arriving here in New York, living here, realizing, wow, what a different thing it was for those who are here. And then thinking about London, the peak of this this air campaign, this 57-day period, which we know as the Blitz. I mean, the Blitz is is a badly used term. I mean, there were air attacks on London from basically September of 1940 through the rest of the war, but intensifying until May 10, 1941. And before that, there were attacks on shipping air bases and so forth. But at the peak of this thing that we know as the Blitz, there were 57 consecutive nights of bombing of London. In effect, 57 consecutive 9-11s. If you can imagine that, if you can imagine how people got through that, that's what drew me to this. And I thought at first, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll look for a typical London family and try and document how they survived this period. And I just thought, wait a minute, why not the quintessential London family? I'm, I'm going to do Churchill. But what's the expression? Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And so it's just like, yeah, I like this guy. And three years of regret later, the book came out. <laughs> so.
0: But also three years of his wife, Clementine, and his son and his son's wife. We yes, will come Randolph back
1: to. And Pamela, yeah.
0: But also Mary Churchill, yeah, who's yeah. 17. And I think it's so interesting that you... Hooked a lot of this story onto the seventeen year old girl, which not a lot of writers would have impulsively moved for. And how well, did you get there? I,
1: well, again, though, it was really a very natural thing because my goal was to find out how this family, if you will, the extended family that included all their the, the really, really close advisors, how this family on a day-to-day basis got through this nightmare. And so Mary, being the seventeen year old daughter of Winston Churchill, was just terrific. And the fact that she kept, Not just a diary, but a really wonderful diary, articulate, smart. This was one sharp kid who was an able observer of political events, of her father, loved her father very deeply, was able to write really coherently about the day-to-day realities of, of the war. She loved to have fun. She loved to have fun, and she wrote about you know, having fun. She wrote about going to the various RAF bases and dancing into the wee hours of the morning, snogging in the hayloft. I mean, it's just great stuff. And so for me, I mean, I knew that this young woman had to be in my book no matter what. So,
0: One of the things I find really interesting about interviews that I've read with you prior to this is that you mentioned that you don't feel like you're a historian. And I understand why you're saying it, but I think there are readers out there who would be a little befuddled by that statement. And you come out of journalism. You had a long newspaper career before you started writing books. And I'd like to go back in time a little bit with you and talk about all of the work that you had to put into these stories that would last a day, a week. You were really writing before what we think of as the internet boom and what happened with newspapers and magazines when the internet sort of opened the spigot, as it were.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I started the small newspapers. First was a daily newspaper in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Then I, through some miracle, I was able to jump to the Wall Street Journal, which at the time had a Philadelphia bureau. So I moved there. And writing those journal stories at the time, especially, was just this amazing, amazing luxury and this amazing learning experience because I could spend a month working just on a, on a piece that for the front page, this center column, which would tend to be sort of funny stories. That would only be four pages in manuscript length, but I could spend a month and nobody would blink an eye. So this was a lovely opportunity to learn how to craft stories, but also how to go super deep into the detail. The best stories were those where I just went so deep and found the most arcane stuff and made sure to stick that in the story. So that was really, that was my proving ground. But you're right. The problem was, and after I left the journal, I I did very long magazine pieces, which had the same dynamic. I mean, I just obsessed with finding all these interesting little details. But the problem was, especially with the newspaper, the story lasted a day. Magazines, a little bit longer, but still, you know, basically a day. And what I realized, especially with the magazine pieces, was I was doing enough work on these magazine stories. I was doing enough research on these things um, to to really turn them into books. So then I started thinking, well, wait a minute, why don't I just do the books? (laughs) And so That's how it started. I mean, my first two books were actually very journalistic. One was about about how companies spy on on individual consumers. That was called the Naked Consumer. And one was about the gun culture called Lethal Passage. But then from there, one thing led to another. And I did my first work of narrative history, is how people like to refer to them, I guess. And that was Isaac Storm. I just really just loved it.
0: And that's Galveston, Texas, which you have no connection to. You just Uh found the story. And chase the story.
1: Well, I found the story <laughs> it's, it's so often. I mean, this in this business, you know, so often it's pure accident. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I do teach writing courses and so forth, I just, just tell my, my students, you know, <laughs> leave yourself open to set your net as far and wide as you can read everything and something's going to come to you. I was working on a book conceptually. It was a great idea. I was trying to do a, a book about a nonfiction historical murder. I'd been really turned on by Caleb Carr's book, The Alienist, which, of course, was fiction, but it's a mm-hmm. great book, really with a powerful evocation of old New York. And so I thought, I'm going to try to do a nonfiction book about a historical murder that would create the same sort of sense of, of the past. Mm-hmm. Went looking for that murder, found the murder of William Marsh Rice, a Galveston resident whose money eventually founded Rice University, was not particularly mysterious. I, I eventually killed that project, but... In the course of doing that research, the initial research on that, I came across this headline in the New York world that said 2,000 people had been killed in Galveston, Texas, by a hurricane. Now, I grew up on Long Island, and I was was a hurricane junkie from the get-go, and I had never heard of a storm killing 2,000 people in America. So, and I thought it was just at first, it was, it was typical New York world, yellow journalism. Then I started looking into it and I realized that it was actually 2000 was very much an underestimate of what ultimately happened. I got so into the storm and I said, forget the murder. I'm going to do the storm. And, right. and with the help of my agent, I credit him with really shaping, putting me on the path for this kind of historical storytelling, because he was really insistent that if this was going to work, I needed to find real life characters mm-hmm. to populate the story. And so. I did, and built the narrative around those characters and the storm itself as a character. And it became a model for me about how to pursue these things uh, with the other books that follow. I want to address what you said, though, about the the historian thing. I think the best way to think about it is that I think of myself as as a writer of history. I think historians are, it's kind of a lofty profession. Um, Historians have many more obligations than I have. Often a historian really needs to delve into things in such a way that not to be telling things or telling them in a fresh way, but really carving a, a new perception of the past. You know, going into land use documents and so forth. It's a very, very refined, lofty kind of thing. I'm a storyteller. I'm telling uh, true stories. Everything I'm writing is nonfiction, but I'm trying to apply the techniques and tactics of fiction to the writing of nonfiction, and that's where I derive my satisfaction. Am I a historian? Not sure I'm a historian, but I, I think of myself as a writer of history.
0: And just a reminder to listeners, too, that when dialogue appears in any of your books, and it's in quotation marks, you have found that in a source. This is not yes, you any,
1: yep, hypothesizing
0: yep. what someone might say, because, yes, you've done the work, you've, you've done the research, you've done the legwork, but yes. you know, you are referring specifically to a document that exists that involves yes. that person directly.
1: You can't do narrative history unless you have the material. And you just have to keep digging until you until you get it, if it's available. And that's why some ideas simply are not conducive to this kind of process. I mean, I'd love to write about Magellan. There just isn't enough material that, that right. to satisfy me. As I always state at the beginnings of my books, my authors note that everything between quotation marks is from some kind of historical document, whether it's a Diary, court transcript, court transcripts are wonderful things. Perhaps a, a, an old newspaper account of a trial. They were very, very detailed in their coverage of sensational trials. Anything some some kind of document like that, no, you can't make anything up and put it between quotes. When people will say to me, "Well, but you have dialogue, you must have made that up. I would also often encourage them to take a closer look at the passage that they read and says, see, but was that really dialogue or, Was it a couple of statements and quotation marks within a single paragraph that flows as if it were dialogue, you know?
0: You had mentioned The Alienist by Caleb Carr, which, I mean, when that book came out, I remember, and it was the biggest, everyone was reading that book. Even if you didn't have a thing for old New York, everyone wanted to read that book. It was really a moment in the culture where still you would see disparate groups of people reading the same thing kind of moment. And I want to talk about the influence that fiction has on your writing because your books are a pleasure to read. The story moves, but you never lose sight of character. You never lose sight of their motivation. You never lose sight of the basics of the story.
1: <laughs> this is another reason why I'm not a historian per se. I allow myself the privilege of telling the story without necessarily having to do all the due diligence, not due diligence, not due diligence. Writing about Churchill and his family in this situation, in the war, I'm able to confine my interest to what happened, how they got through this period. I don't have to talk about Churchill's prior 60 years. I don't have to redo his biography. I get to start with the good stuff and just keep going, working in biographical details and so forth. And that's being able to just focus on the story that I want to tell. For example, with my book, Devil in the White City, about the World's Fair of 1893, I wanted to tell the story about the building of that fair, this design, this incredible design and construction thing that took place in the course of a a year and a half, juxtaposed against the serial killer. But my real interest was in in this this incredible fair and, and how it came to be. But in terms of the World's Fair of 1893, there was so much else that could have gone into that book, but it didn't belong in this story. You know, and I've, I've been dinged a little bit by some who have said, well, why didn't you include more about the female role in the World's Fair of 1893, you know, the Women's Pavilion and so forth? I did to the extent that I could, but it was not about that. It wasn't about the, the role of women. It wasn't about the role of the African-American population in the fair. It was about this story that I wanted to tell. And so I had the luxury of being able to just focus on that story.
0: One of the things that you mentioned in another interview was how much you appreciate John Irving's cliffhangers (laughs) and that he really knows how to end a chapter. And one of the things I found really interesting about the way Splendid and the Vile* is structured is that the chapter lengths vary, that you came in and you did what you needed to do. And then maybe the chapter was a page. Maybe it was five are those the kinds of beats that you're structuring in as you're drafting the story? Or is that something that comes out of the editorial process after you've had time to sit with it and step away for a minute?
1: You, you know, it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. I do know as I'm working along, or at least I have an instinct that something is going to make a short chapter. I, I refer to them as chapterlets. I do know, and I identify them as such in my notes, that this would be a good chapterlet. Whether they ultimately end up that way or not, I don't know. But I have. Just as when I'm trying to grapple with the narrative structure, where it's a very physical architectural process, visual with lines and different colored pens and and so forth, by the same token, it's a very architectural process in terms of structuring the book itself, the the pages and chapters. Long chapters, space with short chapters, space with lots of text breaks. I mean, reading is a, it can be a, a difficult process. And the more you break up the page, the easier it is on the reader. You know, I just finished. When I just finished a book that I couldn't finish. But she's still in the midst of mm-hmm. the book, but like well, a single chapter it was a hundred pages. That's hard as a reader. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's just it's a weird phenomenon. So I love to break things up, and I especially love to have a long chapter and then maybe a single page chapter, like a, like telegrams are ideal for that. Or in the case of Mary Churchill's diary. Uh a single page with a couple of quotes from her diary, and then on to the next thing. Because first of all, it's great for increasing pace. And especially Uh as I get toward May 10, 1941, all the Uh chapters start getting shorter and shorter, more cutaways, more text breaks within each, each chapter because it is a physical process.
0: So I want to ask you about your editorial process. You've had the same editor now for a couple of books. And you've done, again, I'm coming back to the research, but you've Done the research, you've done the drafting, you have assembled the story, you've identified who the characters are. What's the editorial process like for you?
1: It is my attitude. I I will not turn a manuscript into my editor unless it's in a condition where I would be comfortable seeing it in print the next day. So I don't think in terms of rough drafts. I would never knowingly give an editor something that I would call a rough draft. And God forbid I would tell her that this is a rough draft. The thing you want to avoid, I feel. Uh, is that you, you want to avoid inviting your editor to climb into your manuscript to the extent that you can. Now, it's going to happen anyway, but by saying that something's a rough draft or even apologizing for it, it's like you're putting your editor on guard while he or she is reading this thing, looking for things that are problematic. So I try to be as thorough as I can in terms of producing what I consider a publishable draft. In the case of this, uh, this Churchill book, I, the thing that I turned, well, the thing that I turned in, I, I still adhered to my my principles, but it was a huge manuscript. I mean, it would have yielded a book that was twice the size of the book as it is now, and it's a fairly long book just because I had so much stuff, so much good stuff. But also, there was always this sort of Churchillian surveillance over my shoulder, the sense that there's all these scholars out there waiting for me to screw up, and so I was. Really careful to make sure everything was absolutely right what it had to be, to the point actually, where I sent the whole manuscript out to to three Churchill experts. And that was very satisfying. They came back with relatively few things to suggest, many of them simply things that only a Londoner would know about how to describe, you know, 10 Downing Street. And a couple of them were like, you know, this surprised even me, (laughs) because I was able to dredge up things because I had this window on that time that nobody else had tried to look through to look at that time. I was able to find new things that other people probably had come across. But I was able to see them in a different way because of my story. How the wine cellar at the, the country estate checkers was stocked, because nobody else really thought to pay attention to that. Yet to me, it was very important. And it turned out to be really very, very funny. And there's a lot more about that, by the way, that I could have stuck in there too. Anyway, mm-hmm. so so my so the book goes to my, my editor. And my editor, she gives me back um, her editorial letter, which uh, begins with, two pages of praise and all the things that are just terrific. And, you know, your heart swells when you read this, the violins are playing. Then comes, you know, it's like 10 pages of problems, right? And then she closes it with another two pages of violins. That's the how, how things begin. And then it'll go through, a, rewrite the manuscript completely with, with all these things in mind. That's what I t- typically end up doing.
0: You have a very definite process that clearly works because we get to see the results. But does anything ever surprise you as you're writing, or is it just a piece of the story might surprise you, or a person might surprise you? I mean, are you in a place now where you're kind of like, well, I know, I know where this is going?
1: There's a lot of surprise. Things okay. are always surprising. Maybe it, maybe it's disconcerting how surprising things actually are. <laughs> It's actually actually end up being. I mean, you know, you, you have the conception of what you want to do and how you want to tell it, but a book proposal is 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 basically an educated guess of of, mm-hmm. of, of what's mm-hmm. out there. It's good to have a surprise because otherwise it would be really boring if I knew exactly what I was doing and knew where everything was and what everything was. I'd just be a story basically transcribing history, mm-hmm. coming across things that, that surprised me, like Mary Churchill. You know, I had no idea that I was going to get access to her diary. That was a mm-hmm. that was a, a totally lucky thing. And That made the book, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that really made the book. It it provided an entire element of narrative of underpinning. As did some of the intelligence documents that I found on Rudolf Hess and his landing in Scotland. I mean, some of these things just, I was just so delighted at some of these things. One, One portion of the intelligence materials was a list of all the wild homeopathic drugs and pharmaceuticals that Rudolf Hess, a famous hypochondriac, had brought with him in his valise on this flight to parachute into, into Scotland. It's a long, long list. And so I just thought, okay, I'm running out the list. So that list now appears in, in the book. And those, But those things are the delights, things that this is another positive, another reason why I don't necessarily think of myself as a, as a historian. You know, a historian, there are Churchill scholars and Churchill is their subject. They know everything there is to know. And that's tremendous, you know, that's great. It's great in, 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 you know, interpreting things and writing, writing. you know, um, uh, uh, bringing forth elements of, of their past lives that nobody knew and so forth. But one advantage that I have going into my various subjects is complete ignorance. You know, I mean, when I go in, I don't know the vicissitudes of the various stories i don't know you know i know enough from my research and and, and book proposal but i don't know all the details my job is to find it is to is to plunge into the material and plunging into this material that other people are so familiar with i see things that it's like "I, i didn't know that and i'm confident that my readers don't know it i'm not writing for churchill experts although my hope is that they Will embrace the book. I'm writing for an audience that I I I perceive to be my kind of reader. Somebody who necessarily I hear all the time from people via Twitter that I I I would never have come to this book. You know, a book about Churchill. But boy, once I got into it, I loved it. That's that's what I'm after. And so ignorance it, it is indeed bliss. You know, I I get to charge into this material and learn things that somebody else you know new matter of factly I would never have thought to put it in a book about Churchill in this era. I mean, another very elementary thing. I had no idea that the maximum time a German fighter plane could stay in the air was 90 minutes. I mean, I was, I was blown away by that 90 minutes. And, you know, and that's why, you know, the the, the thing that allowed this German air campaign to happen was the fall of France because only then were German aircraft allowed to be close enough to, to the channel and to to Britain to be able to wage an air war. But 90 minutes, that's incomprehensible to me. The same short time in the air held for for RAF fighters, also. Now, another funny little element. You know, we all think of the, you know, the the aircraft that really t- defined the, the, the blitz period, the British aircraft, was the Spitfire, right? It was in fact the hurricane, 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 um, that was really the the go-to aircraft for the RAF.
0: This is also a moment though when Churchill is having to navigate. A difficult relationship with FDR in the United States. And Joe Kennedy is the U.S. ambassador. He is not a fan of Churchill's. The people in the U.K. are not really a fan of Joe Kennedy's either. So it, no. he may not have been the right person to send, if we look at it through that lens. But here's Churchill, and he's trying to explain to FDR that things are very dangerous. This is really serious. As you say, France has fallen. The Germans could overrun. But mm. if he takes it too far, then FDR may go in not quite the direction Churchill needs him to go. It was
1: a very deft courtship. I mean, Mm -hmm. Churchill acknowledged that. Churchill recognized it almost as how a lover would court another, the target of of his affections. And and, and he, he waged what I consider to be really sort of a masterful campaign, you know, slowly reeling Roosevelt in. Now, do I think that Churchill's efforts changed ultimately the chronology of how things happen? Not really, I think FDR understood from the start that this was going to be. It was inevitable that America would get into this conflict, but that it had to be ready. People had to be ready for this before America could do so. but churchill was was just very careful in making sure he knew everything that was going on, how dangerous things were for Britain. And you know, maybe some of the more successful elements of that courtship were, like, for example, when uh, FDR sent Avril Harriman over to sort of check out Churchill and check out, his crowd to see, well, were things really as bad as he was saying? And Avril Harriman turned out to be a, a big fan of Churchill, and that certainly helped get you know America's interest. So Churchill was very cunning in that respect.
0: And he was very open when he was, or as open as he could be, when he was speaking to the British public through his speeches. I mean, if you look at some of these speeches, they're very much more along the lines of Jimmy Carter's sweater speech from the 70s, where he's saying, things are bad, this is what we can do, and being very honest with the British people in a way that no previous prime minister had been.
1: Well, I, I don't know that no previous prime minister, I can't speak to that since I'm not a historian of prime ministers, mm. but Churchill did, he was, he was a master at structuring his speeches to get the reality across, but also to inspire optimism and, and confidence. You know, he would start with the bad news and the news was very bad, but he w- and he would not sugarcoat it. He would be very, very frank, but then he would come back also with concrete reasons for optimism—not made-up happy talk, but concrete reasons for optimism. And then he would close the speech with one of his rousing Churchillian acts of of incredible literary dexterity, and you know, metaphorically have people leaping out of their chairs, saying, "All right, I'm I'm in there."
0: One of the projects that you uncovered during your research though was this almost a diary project of the british people and it wasn't meant to be a wartime exercise but it was a sociological study to collect diaries of average Brits. yeah
1: yeah this is called it was called mass observations mm-hmm. and another benefit of not knowing much of anything when mm-hmm. you plunge in you know being the Fool who dares to tread. Um, I didn't really know anything about this entity until I started doing this research. And it's called Mass Observation, is what it was called. And Mass Observation began actually before the war. It was a social science experiment, if you will, where people were recruited by this entity to write diaries, uh, keep diaries of the of the most routine things of the ordinary days, and to submit these on a regular basis to Mass Observation. Hundreds of people kept these diaries. Long comes the war. And people still kept these diaries, and it became this invaluable record of the day-to-day impact of the war on on ordinary individuals. Just an incredible resource. So that, of course, those elements had to be in my my book. One person in particular, Olivia Cockett, who got into the book because she's incredibly articulate and because she happened to be having an affair with a married man, which I thought the more sex I can get into my books, the better. And I loved Olivia Cockett because... She also exemplified the the arc of resistance and defiance of the British people. She began, uh, you know, terrified after the first bombs began to fall on London proper. She was terrified as were anybody in, in that circumstance. But then one day, an incendiary bomb, these were bombs that were meant to uh, essentially light fires. Uh, they would just explode with flammable materials, the idea being to set the city on fire. And in fact, they had a secondary purpose was which to, once they set things on fire, they would serve as visual guides for incoming bomber pilots, because navigation was still pretty much an iffy thing. So one day, one of these incendiary bombs um, fell outside the back of her home, and she put it out. She was so thrilled with herself. Suddenly, her fear was gone. She became braver and braver. Meanwhile, unfortunately, her boyfriend became more and more of a coward, which drove her crazy. So, But that was a nice dynamic also.
0: Do you have a favorite moment from Splendid and the Vile?
1: Yeah, if you asked me tomorrow, I, I would probably come up with a different moment. But mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think my favorite moment from Splendid and the Vile is actually the moment from which the title of the book, Splendid and Vile, it, it derives. Because John Colville, who was one of Churchill's private secretaries, who was keeping this illicit, illegal diary, and if the security forces had found out that he were keeping it, he would have been in deep trouble to, for fear that, you know, Hitler would have gotten it, somehow gotten, you know, hold of this through German agents. But so John Colville uh, was keeping this very, very detailed diary. And in this diary, he recounts one particular night where he was he was at his family's home and a big air raid happens. And of course, you know, as one Did he went up to his bedroom and started watching it from the bedroom window as it unfolded? And to him, there was such such an amazing, amazing juxtaposition of things. Here was this, you know, sable black night, dark, you know, brilliant night, bombs, searchlights, explosions, you know, you know, tracer bullets flying through the sky. And it was just this, as he put it, this amazing juxtaposition of natural splendor and human vileness. And the way he wrote this, this entry in his diary was just so, I mean, so captured that particular moment in a way that, you know, unless you were there, you wouldn't necessarily think about, you know, that that there would be this beauty in what was, what was unfolding. So that became The Splendid and the Vial.
0: Which is why it's always good to start with the first-person reference material.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. Uh, John Colville, as anybody who writes about Churchill knows, is probably the, the single most most valuable resource. But back to the subject of surprise, this so I pride myself on, John Colville is typically treated as a source of secondary quotes, as somebody like passing by in the narratives, offering an observation about Churchill. I decided early on that Colville was going to be a character. He was going to be part of Churchill's family. He was literally part of Churchill's family in the sense that he was ever present, had to be with him when he was on duty all the time. John Colville was gonna be one of my characters and suddenly through his perspective, doing the narrative that I was doing, I was able to look at his diary very differently. But a real moment for me was when I was in the Churchill archives and I decided, well, okay, The published diary, it's called Fringes of Power, and it's very good, very accurate. It's not edited much. That is to say that the entries in it are the entries that you would find in the original diary. He, however, cut some things from the original diary. As he says in his introduction to the diary, I removed trivialities. And to me, I'm like, ding, ding, wait a minute. What trivialities? I have to find out. This is probably my greatest research moment on this book. They're the Churchill archives. I compared the published diary with the actual manuscript diary to see what was left out. And oh my God, gold, pure gold. The trivialities was that John Colville was deeply in love, deeply in love. And the target of his affection was not returning the favor. And it just hurt him. It haunted him. That's not a triviality. You know, I mean, I remember the torments of young love. So anyway, that was, that to me was just like, wow, just thank you, John.
0: He's also the source of one of my favorite moments in the book which involves a yellow bathrobe and I'm gonna let folks discover it because I was yeah, 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 yeah. I was giggling very, very hard as I read about that golden bathrobe.
1: Golden dragon silk robe.
0: We know who you are as a writer, but who are you as a reader?
1: I am a painfully slow reader mm-hmm. and I think it must be an occupational hazard. I am so slow and I, I think it's because, well, I know it's because I'm I'm constantly analyzing what I'm reading which is kind of a curse because what you really want to be able to do is fall into a book. That's certainly what I hope readers of my books will do. So, so I'm, I'm a very slow reader. Only a relatively few books will just absolutely suck me in and, and defeat that tendency to be analytical. You know, for example, one book, um, Amor Tolles is a gentleman in Moscow, transcended the words on the page for me. Mm-hmm,
0: and I, mm-hmm. I told him that
1: we've become friends and that to me was exactly the, the kind of thing that I aspire to in my nonfiction is to try to create a narrative where people just forget where they are, fall back in time. But what I tend to read, well, what I only read in my from when I get up in the morning, like five until five, if I well, when I'm doing research and so forth, of course, it's all nonfiction, it's all documents and so forth. So after hours, you know, sitting in front of the fire, having a drink with my wife, it's always fiction exclusively fiction, and it can be any kind of fiction. I mean, I will read detective fiction. I will read, you name it, yep. whatever.
0: Just for the pure pleasure, which is what reading is meant to do so just for,
1: just, for just for the pure pleasure, yeah. But again, I still can't shake that whole analytical thing.
0: I can see that. Is there anything that you want to add to listeners' experience of The Splendid Navajo?
1: What I will say is that I was very gratified. You know, this book came out... Just before the pandemic broke, I was in the middle of a book tour for the book. I remembered vividly when suddenly everything came to a screaming halt and I was on the next plane home. Mm -hmm. But much to my amazement, what followed was that in the midst of this national tragedy of ours, I kept hearing from readers that they had found solace in The Splendid and the Vile. And that effect really did sort of suddenly fill the sales of this book in terms of readership and market for it for a a good period. And I was so gratified by that, so unexpected and so unfortunate that the context had to be that, that way. But that was very, very powerful for me.
0: It was a really great moment, I think, for everyone to be able to turn to a book and find comfort in a book. Eric Larson, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The Splendid in the Vial is out now in paperback.
1: Thank you. Great interview. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.